Morning, church. It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, just to give you an update, as I've uh, kind of updated you last week, but I want to continue as we move closer to our trip to Haiti. Uh, next Sunday will be our uh, last Sunday with you for a few weeks, as we will be making our uh, trip to Haiti for the adoption. I do want to clarify that we will not be bringing the boys home with us on this trip, as many uh, may have thought that. We actually, uh, this is a mandatory socialization visit. So we're going to go down, we're going to meet, we're going to greet, but we have to come home without the boys for six to eight months before traveling down again for a week to finally bring them home. And I do want to share with you that this week we had our uh, doctor's appointments where we felt a little bit like lab rats. Um, yeah, <laughs> they uh, poked us, they prodded us. Uh, now we are fully uh, immune to Things like typhoid fever and cholera, uh, hepatitis A, hepatitis B. I got a number of shots in my arm, and I had to drink a juice, a concoction um, that was uh, not really pleasant at all. Um, <clears throat> for those of you that have drinking uh, maybe Alka-Seltzer before, uh, think about that, but like really thick uh, and, and even more salty. Uh, just it was not uh, very pleasant. But we're excited about what God is doing. Um, we're excited to continue to move forward uh, in obedience to the plan that he has for us in this adoption. We very much appreciate your prayers uh, and your support through this season. We've been going through the book of John uh, over the last few weeks, and I want to give you an idea of where we're going and, and what we're going to do. This is actually going to be uh, our pausing point in the book. Uh, for a little bit, because next week we're going to look at an Old Testament account from the life of Moses in the book of Exodus, and then Pastor Stan will be with you for three weeks, uh, and then when we return, we'll actually be jumping right into our Advent series, which will take us up to Christmas, and then following New Year, we'll jump right back into where we're leaving off here uh, in the book of John. So we're continuing with our account of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, and uh, we're looking at the second half of that interaction that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. And, you know, I want to I share something with you, because we're, we're going to talk about worship today. And, you know, in the 19th century, there were debates that were raging throughout the churches in England over the inclusion of choirs into regular morning services. In, in 19th century England, choirs were seen to be a distraction. There were too many people on stage. It was too loud. Too many people were moving and swaying around. And it was a distraction for people who were coming to worship. It was considered showy, a performance to many who were coming. It was actually suggested that choirs be moved back behind the congregation so as to not distract from the reverent environment required to worship properly. Friends, it was an early form of our modern quote-unquote worship wars. And you know, we say modern, but the reality is we have been dealing with uh, modes and styles uh, and substance uh, and all of these things regarding worship for years and years and years. Going back probably to the beginning of corporate worship, gathering together uh, for Sunday morning. And I believe that what we find is that worship is much more than what we often see it to be. Or sometimes much more than even what we practice it to be. And so I'm thankful that God did not leave us 
without direction regarding worship in his word. We're going to spend some time today looking at his interaction with the woman of the well and what he teaches us about worship. And our goal is this, to see our lives in line with Jesus' definition of worship so that we might be found to be true worshipers, worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. And we're going to accomplish this today by observing some realities regarding worship that Jesus reveals in his discourse with this woman at the well. In our text today, Jesus will reveal two realities regarding worship. He will correct three misunderstandings regarding worship. And he will define and describe for us what true worshipers look like. Jesus has been talking with the woman about the gift of eternal life that he's able to provide her. And for those of us who have received this gift, the orientation of our hearts and the patterns of our lives will be found in the constant worship and glorification of our God. So if you have your Bibles today, please turn to John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 16 to 26 as we explore the second half of Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father God, we come this morning, as we do on Sundays, with anticipation that you are ready to do a work in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we know that you've called us to this, the corporate opening of your word and studying of Scripture together as a congregation. And Lord, it's with anticipation that we wait and see what you have for us today. Father, we come today in a culture and in a community where there are many distractions. As I fear so often, those distractions take center stage in our lives. We witnessed, uh, just in our own nation this week, the sending of bombs and incendiary devices to politicians across our world. Father, we witnessed, just this week, in our own community, in our own neighborhood, the death of a student at Warwick High School. And another, Lord, who's fighting for her life. Father, we look around And we consider the events of yesterday at the Jewish synagogue in Pittsburgh where so many people lost their lives. And today, Lord, you've brought us to a passage on worship. And our question today as we gather, what what we want you to teach us, Lord, what we want you to show us is how can we worship in these days? In these difficult days. And Father, in in your word in John chapter 16, you tell us that in this world we will have troubles. But that we are to take heart because you have overcome the world. And so it is our prayer this morning as we open your word and as we begin to talk about worship that we would fall back on the truth of your being. And the power of of who you are in these moments and these days that we don't understand and we can't understand. We ask you to teach us. Lord, you be our teacher. Teach us to worship and to worship well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to look at chapter 4. We're going to start in 
verse 16, and we're going to look at verses 16 to 18 of John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, this is the woman at the well, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So we, we talked about this account of the woman at the well last week and we saw that Jesus was offering this woman this gift that he was able to provide for her, this gift of eternal life. And now in the interaction, Jesus turns and, and he tells her to go get her husband. And in, and in this one sentence, he has really ripped off a band-aid that has uncovered another thirst that this Samaritan woman had in her life. It was an emotional thirst. A thirst to belong. A thirst to to be loved. And we can immediately recognize her physical need of thirst at the onset of the text. And even last week we recognized that she had a, a true spiritual thirst that only Jesus could quench. But now we come to the revelation of an emotional thirst that dominated the narrative of this woman's life. She had a deep longing to be loved and feel needed. And in this moment, Jesus gently exposes this need by requesting for her to call for her husband. The Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, can take away her sins as well. But first she must come face to face with them. A reality which appears to terrify her. So here she is, friends, standing exposed in the light of day. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. And so what does she do? She dismisses Jesus quickly. I have no husband. I have no husband. All of the hurt, all of the shame, the guilt, and the fear that followed her lifestyle choices, all of a sudden exposed and laid bare before Jesus. And you can almost see the conscience of the woman waging war in her own minds. How did he know? Surely he cannot know. But what does Jesus do? He digs in. He knows now that she's uncomfortable, and at this point, in a social sense, he has already crossed way beyond what would have been considered to be the norm in the social boundaries. I mean, he had pressed way beyond it. Not only would it it not have been right for a man to address a woman in this setting, but now for a man to, to, to presume and assume her status, he's way outside of the normal, acceptable social boundaries of the day. And the first thing he does here is he commends her truthfulness. He says, you are right in saying I have no husband. However, he does not stop there. There's more that must be exposed. If this woman is truly to recognize her great need for Jesus, she must first truly be confronted with the state of her sinfulness. So Jesus continues to drive in. You have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Even if each of the previous husbands had died, three marriages would have been the top accepted socially normative thing for her day. Three. She had had five. And we're not sure what happened to each of her previous husbands. Some may have died. Some may have divorced her. Her past lifestyle choices are not, a great, are not of great of a concern as her current lifestyle choice. 
And if she is to receive the gift of eternal life, her current lifestyle choices will surely be influenced by the power of the gift that she's about to receive. And so she immediately relents. What you have said is true. And Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to convict us, convict us of sin, friends. There, there's no use in fighting. He knows and he sees. And the first reality regarding worship that's exposed in our text today is that our behaviors affect our ability to worship well. To worship well. Not our ability to worship, but they affect our ability to worship well. And and I want to be clear, we're not talking about God receiving glory here. God will receive the glory He is due, whether we live obediently or not. Whether we worship well or worship poorly, God's glory is not dependent on our behavior. What we're talking about here, friends, is we're talking about our worship, our worship of God. And there's, there's a simple definition of worship that I like to use, and it's this. This is what I believe worship is. The ways in which we honor Jesus and show our thankfulness to God for what he has done for us. Let me say that again. A definition of worship. The ways in which we honor Jesus and show our thankfulness to God for what he has done for us. And we find that the lifestyle choices that we make will have a direct effect on how we honor Jesus and show God that we are thankful. And we don't have to look any further in the Bible than in the testimony of Cain and Abel in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 4, right? To see this working itself out. God knew the condition of Cain's heart. It wasn't about the measure of his offering. The rejection of Cain's offering was totally about the orientation of his heart. Cain's lifestyle, the orientation of his heart, affected his ability to worship Yahweh, his creator, properly. If you look at this text, this is Genesis chapter 4. I'm just going to read verses 3 to 7 here. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why is your face fallen? If if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Now notice in this text, the glory of God is not at stake here. What's at stake in this text is the acceptance of Cain's offering, his worship. And the acceptance of that offering was wholly dependent on the orientation of Cain's heart. Cain's anger and his disappointment revealed the true condition of his heart and uncovered some realities concerning his lifestyle. God even affirms, if you do well, you will be accepted. Be thankful, Cain. Don't worship me out of your duty or obligation. Don't worship me out of some self-righteous sense of responsibility. Worship me, Cain, because you're thankful for who I am. And you desire to give me the honor that I deserve. 
God then warns Cain regarding his duplicitous lifestyle. Sin is crouching, Cain. Be careful. Be careful. And we not need to look any further than verses 8 and 9 to see the destructive lifestyle choices that Cain was making. Cain, a liar and a murderer, thinking that his lifestyle choices bore no weight on his ability to worship the perfectly pure and holy God. Look at verses 8 and 9. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? God's response to Cain here is further evidence that our lifestyle choices affect our ability to properly worship our pure and holy God. There is no hiding with Jesus, friends. And as the woman at the well was unable to hide her behavior from Jesus, the fact of her five husbands, so too was Cain unable to hide his behavior from God. Look at how it ends in verses 10 through 12. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain's choices would forever cause him to be a fugitive and a wanderer. His his behavior had consequences that would directly affect his ability to worship for the rest of his life. Friends, despite what we may think, our lifestyle choices affect our ability to give God the honor he is due in our lives. They also impact our ability to live out of the abundant thankfulness that we should have for what he has done for us. Friends, what, what influences our thinking matters because what influences our thinking affects our behavior. When we baptize ourselves in things throughout the week that are disgusting and dishonorable to God, Our ability to give God the honor that he is due is affected by our behaviors and our thoughts. Friends, our attitudes matter because our attitudes often as well affect our thinking and our behaviors. And if we're offering out of a sense of duty or obligation with hardened hearts and our daily lives are not in line with our Sunday morning behaviors, we must be careful, friends. Sin is crouching at our doors. And it desires to devour us. Desires to devour us. There's something about this interaction that intrigues me as you go through the the emotions and the feelings of Jesus' discourse with this woman at the well. I put myself in the shoes of this Samaritan woman, and that's hard to put yourself in the shoes of the opposite gender. But I try from time to time. I ask my wife if I'm sensitive enough to think about those things from time to time. I often fail. But in this moment, at this time, I tried. You know, I I mean, could you imagine what this woman felt and what she must have thought, how embarrassed, maybe ashamed, maybe guilty she she would have felt this, this sense of guilt. And if I was in her shoes, I thought, man, maybe I would have just put my head down and walked away. But she doesn't do this. And I think it speaks both to the nature of Jesus and how careful he is in his interaction with her, but I also think it speaks to the resiliency of this woman 
Samaritan's woman's lifestyle, it's affecting her ability to truly honor Jesus, yet she's caught up in a realization that this man knows much more about her than a normal person would. She recognizes that he must be a prophet. But what we will discover, friends, is this. Not only do our behaviors affect our ability to worship, but a second reality regarding worship that is revealed in this text is that our beliefs also affect our ability to worship. Look down at verses 19 to 24. Our beliefs affect our ability to worship. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. She has not yet realized the identity of the person she's talking to. As Nicodemus had only found Jesus to be a great teacher and had called him rabbi, here too our Samaritan woman finds Jesus to solely be a prophet. And Jesus had not yet revealed himself to either one either. The Samaritan woman now moves in an attempt again to show what divides them. If you look in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place. And we looked last week at all the divisions, all the different ways she tried to divide them. And again here, she's trying to show what divides them, what they don't have in common. And we find this, friends, what divides us can easily distract us. Let me say that again. In the church, in our lives, what divides us can easily distract us. And so Jesus moves in this section to correct three degrees of misunderstanding that we often have, and I believe that this Samaritan woman had, regarding worship. And it is important that we unite our minds around the understanding that our misunderstandings regarding worship often lead to the misapplication of worship. Or, or often lead us to believe and practice from a limited perspective on worship. That which we misunderstand, we often misapply, right? If, if my wife says to me, hey, I, I want you to go to the grocery store, and I want you to get A, B, C, and D. And by C and D, I had already checked out, and I didn't hear it. I heard A and B, but I didn't get C and D. My application of what she's called me to do, is gonna, it's going to be affected. I'm going to come back from the grocery store and I'm going to have A and B and not C and D. And probably C and D is what she really needed, right? And, and that's the way it would be. And, and, and I think we find that sometimes with worship as well. If we misunderstand what it is, we will probably misapply its practice. Our first degree of misunderstanding regarding worship is that we often believe and practice that worship is dependent upon a location. We often believe and practice that worship 
is dependent upon a location. And we can easily find ourselves misled regarding this reality, and mostly it's because, friends, of the words that we use. Words convey meaning, and when we call our Sunday morning destination a place of worship, we might over time begin believing that it is the only place we ought to worship. And that's not the reality. The reality for the believer is this. Every location we find ourselves in can and should be a place of worship. Every location. It's not about this place or that place. Jesus affirms this in verse 21. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And while correcting the misunderstanding that worship is not dependent on a location, Jesus also begins to correct the misunderstanding that worship is not determined by tradition. He's correcting this misunderstanding that worship is determined by tradition. I'm sorry. The Samaritan woman, she wants to rely on the tradition of her fathers. In verse 20, what she had been taught, what she had, been, what had always done, the way that it had always been. And in verse 22, Jesus connects her reliance on what her fathers has done or what her fathers had taught to a lack of knowledge regarding the Samaritan people's object of worship. He says this. This is, this is a, a stark statement. You worship what you do not know. You worship what you do not know. The tone of the sentence in Greek would indicate that, that she would have understood Jesus to be speaking about the Samaritans as a people group. Thank you for that this morning. That was very helpful. That was the God thing, that video that brings it all together. And not just the, he's not just talking to the woman at the well here. He's talking about all of the Samaritans, as a people group. You worship what you do not know. What a scary thought. That attachment to traditions could cause us to fall into the worship of that which we do not know. Our fathers did it this way. Who or what are we worshiping if we do not know the object of our worship? It's a terrifying thought. What's he suggesting here? If the Samaritan people aren't worshiping the one and true God, who are they worshiping? He then reminds her that true salvation would be produced through Jewish ancestry. And and friends, I think in this case, what we find is the Samaritan woman's authority is misplaced. She's relying on the authority of the traditions of her people over the authority of what the Scriptures had taught regarding worship, and regarding salvation. And he is simply reminding her of that which she should have already recognized to be true, according to the Pentateuch. And if if her belief is wrong, concerning her understanding of salvation, her ability to worship the one true living God, and her people's ability to worship the one true living God, would also be severely hindered. And friends, the same is true for us. And we must be ever so careful to ensure that tradition, and it's so easy. Friends, it happens so easy because it's what we're comfortable with. It's what we love. It's what we know. And so easily tradition can climb on up and put itself right on the shelf next to the authority of God's word. We can't find ourselves in that trap, friends. 
In verse 23, Jesus presses into another degree of misunderstanding that follows the first two. If, if worship is not dependent on location, if it is not determined by a tradition, then neither is worship defined by time. Right? Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here. The time is now. Friends, every single moment of every single day, we are in a worship service. Have you ever thought about your life that way? At every single moment of every day, every moment, every interaction, every point of joy, every victory, every setback, every sorrow, every disappointment, every adversity we face, everything an opportunity to honor Jesus and express our great thankfulness for His work on our behalf. Every moment a worship service. So Sunday mornings, why do we have Sunday mornings then? You sit there, why are we here? <laughs> if every moment of our life and every minute of our life is a worship service, what brings us together on Sunday mornings? And friends, it's exciting. It is exciting what brings us together on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings should become a corporate celebration of that thankfulness for what God has accomplished in our life throughout the week. So we can't come in here like, you know, joyless. We can't. God's done too much. We have too much to be thankful for. We, we can't come in here with, without a, a sense of, of great hope. Because of what Jesus has done in our life throughout the week. And then we get to share it with one another. And friends, the reality of a body of Christ, just as diverse as this body right here today, the reality is this, that some of us on a Sunday morning will come with joy. Because Jesus has, has given us great joy that week. Some of us, though, will come with sorrow. Some of us will be going through grief. And some come with a light burden. And some that come on given weeks, will come with a heavy burden. But friends, we should all be coming to celebrate. This is a celebration on Sunday morning. That's why we gather together. Another breath. Another day. Another opportunity for God to receive the glory from the beauty that He has brought from ashes in our lives. And we go to our ABFs and we sit together with one another and we should encourage one another and build each other up. Look at what God did this week in my life. Celebrate it. And friends, as we leave, the worship doesn't stop. It continues. And it's expressed throughout the week in our love and our joy and our peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control that we show towards our neighbors who Jesus has called us to love. Church, our reality is this. We are always worshiping. We are either worshiping well or we are worshiping poorly. And, and, and I call these weeks, when I prepare these sermons, I get these weeks where the Lord, He like uses the word to just slap me in the face, like on either side over and over again. And I was sitting and I was preparing this message and I was driving home from church and I was sitting in my car and I was thinking, I'm worshiping now. How am I doing? Am I doing this well or am I doing this poorly? And I believe in the moment I wasn't doing it very well. I, I was just kind of on autopilot. 
And, and I think, you know, in our lives, it's such an easy place to get to. It's such an easy place to find ourselves in. Yet, yet the Lord would call us to be worshiping Him at all times. We should never be on autopilot. Our worship either shows the world that we're thankful because Jesus is sufficient, or it'll show the world that our Savior is small and unable to satisfy our deepest needs. And now Jesus has expressed to the Samaritan woman these three realities regarding worship. That it's not dependent on location, it's not determined by tradition, and it's not defined by time. And he will move forward now to describe what true worshipers of God look like. Look down at verses 23 and 24 of your text. Verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Friends, true worshipers will worship the Father both in spirit and and in truth. He has manifested Himself in truth through the sending of His Son, the Word. The kind of worshipers, friends, that the Father is seeking are worshipers that reflect and express and live the truths of God with great joy and great thankfulness. These are worshipers who have been born from above, born of the Spirit. They have been born of both water and the Word. There are worshipers who are united and knit together by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I love how D.A. Carson describes this spirit and truth dynamic. He says this, quote, There are not two separable characteristics of worship that must be offered. It must be in spirit and truth. Essentially God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit and in personal knowledge of the conformity to God's Word made flesh. The one who is God's truth. The faithful exposition and fulfillment of God and His saving purposes. These two characteristics form one, ma- one matrix. Indivisible. End quote. In other words, I sum it up like this. There are no true worshipers who worship only in spirit. Something is missing. There is nothing real for our joy or our thankfulness to be grounded in if it is not grounded in the truth of God. So it must be in spirit and truth. And likewise, there are no true worshipers who worship only in truth. Something is missing. We have not understood the grand truths of our faith if they do not cause us to live with great joy and great thankfulness in every single moment of our lives. If we are to be true worshipers, friends, it must be in spirit and in truth. The identity of these true worshipers is found in a people who have been transformed of the spirit and renewed by the washing of the word. Worshippers who understand that worship is not dependent on a location, it's not determined by a specific tradition, and it's not defined within a set period of time. True worshipers worshiping God every single moment of their life. And the question, friends, that we might ask ourselves this morning is, how are we doing? How are we doing? I know that this has been a challenge for me this week as I have been confronted with the reality of this truth and this message, that in every moment of my life I'm worshiping. 
and I find myself leaving and going places now and thinking, how am I worshiping right now? How am I worshiping? I wonder how much, if any, of what Jesus is sharing in these moments is sinking in with the woman at the well. She's probably like, whoa, I've gotten a lot more than I was bargaining for here in this interaction. What did she really understand about worship? Uh, Did she even view herself as a true worshiper? We don't really find out, but look down at what happens in verses 25 and 26 of our text. This is truly phenomenal. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he was called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all of these things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Look, this woman, look, sir, I'm not sure about all you're saying here, but one day Messiah is coming and he'll teach us about all of these things. And she's right. She's absolutely right. One day he is coming. One day he would teach her. What she didn't realize is he was standing right in front of her, teaching her right then and right there. And in verse 26, the veil is lifted and Jesus reveals himself to this woman. I who speak to you am he. And this is amazing. I mean, he's not even declared himself as the Messiah to the Jewish people. At this point, in this location, a contested location, between a hotly contested group of people, Jesus would reveal himself as the Messiah to a woman of Samaria? Friends, this is our Savior. Revealing himself to as ever his Father directed, whenever and wherever his Father directed. And this divine appointment that becomes a treatise on worship also serves as an example to us that we serve a Savior who modeled for us what true worship is to look like. Friends, worship is life. How we respond in the everyday, daily situations and circumstances that God brings into our lives matters because we are always worshiping. Here on an early afternoon by a well in Samaria, After a three-day journey, weary, hungry, thirsty, Jesus is ready. He's ready to show his father honor by interacting with a common Samaritan woman who came needing water but found so much more. And the question that we ask ourselves as we conclude our messages every Sunday is how should our lives look in light? Of these realities. And I think there's a few simple truths in this passage regarding worship. And I just kind of put them in the form of who, why, where, when, and how questions, okay? Who do we worship? This passage would teach us that we worship the Father. Why do we worship? We worship to honor Jesus and display our joy and thankfulness for what God has done for us. Where do we worship? We worship everywhere. When do we worship? All the time. We're either doing it well or we're doing it poorly. And how do we worship? We worship in spirit and in truth. And so our friends, the questions that we may ask ourselves as we leave this morning is, how are we worshiping today? How will we worship when we leave this building today? How will we worship in our homes this week? How will our neighbors see us worshiping this week? How are our, who, who will our neighbors see us worshiping this week? How and who is very important. Will people see us worshiping at school, at our jobs, in the community? And, and, I, and I, I feel like today, friends, this is such an important, 
I, I don't know why God intended for us to have this message today. I'm going right through the book of John, and I can't help where we end up on a Sunday morning. That's up to the Lord. But here we are today at the end of the week where we've seen some very difficult things happen in our country and in our nation. And at the end of the week, as I was doing final prep on my message for Sunday, for this morning, one of the things that the Spirit pressed into me is how can we do this in difficult days? How can we do this in difficult days when there's challenges, when there's struggles? And there are days, friends, that we acknowledge our utter inability to understand God. And we are driven towards a dependence on Him. And we serve a God who always keeps His promises. He doesn't always give us the answers that we are looking for around every corner or under every rock, but He always provides assurance that He is faithful and true. And friends, we worship in these days and we worship in these moments because we believe that we serve a God who has overcome the world. He has overcome the world. And all of the events that we see this week in our country and our community are difficult. But Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome them. Would you pray with me? Father, we think this morning, our hearts go out this morning to the many in our country, in our community, in our neighborhood, and in our own state who have been affected by the tragedies that we've witnessed. Lord, we pray for the grieving families. Lord, we pray for comfort. We pray for peace. We pray that you would raise up a community of believers within their midst to surround them with love, to wrap their arms around them, to pray for them, and to love them as you have called us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Father, we pray in these days where it may be difficult for us to understand how to worship with joy and thankfulness that, again, you would teach us, you would give us faith to trust that what you say is true and that you are exactly who you tell us you are in your word. Lord, when we don't understand, would you give us the courage to cry out to you? When we can't see what you're doing, would you give us the courage to ask for vision? And Father, give us exactly what you want us to have to accomplish the purposes that you have for us each day in our lives. And it is our prayer that you would receive all of the glory and all of the honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you go today, as you leave, might you go worshiping knowing that every moment of your life, every second of the day, every minute is an opportunity for you to bring glory and honor to a Savior that's given you so much to be joyful for 